0: Um, We are going to be in John 11, verses 45 through 57. Therefore, many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw that he did believe him. Wait, I'm going to restart because that didn't sound right in my head. Um, Therefore, many of the Jews who came to Mary and saw what... He did believe in him. Some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees convened the Sanhedrin and were saying, what are you going to do since this man is doing so many signs? If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. One of them Caiaphas, who was a high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all. You are not considering that this is your advantage, that one man should die for the people rather than the whole nation perish. He did not say this on his own, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation and for the nation only, but also to unite the scattered children of God. So from that day on, so from on that day, From that day on, they plotted to kill him. Jesus, therefore, no longer walked openly among the Jews, but departed from there to the countryside near the wilderness, to a town called Ephraim, and he stayed there with the disciples. Now the Jewish Passover was near, and many went up to Jerusalem from the country to purify themselves before the Passover. They were looking for Jesus and asking one another as they stood in the temple. What do you think? He won't come to the festival, will he? The chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that if anyone knew where he was, he should report it so that they could arrest him. And here's Simon.
1: Thanks, Take all your papers. We pray together. Father, thank you for uh, this morning. Thank you for another Sunday, another opportunity to gather, to be together, to enjoy each other. And Father, thank you for your word. Pray that this morning you would help us. Holy Spirit, would you be our teacher. Pray that this would be more than just... um, an exercise in looking at some ancient writings. I pray that, Father, this morning uh, through your word, you would speak to us by your spirit here with us. Help us, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. And good morning. good morning. Welcome back, Hannah Howie. <laughs> <laughs> ah, the joy of being in a small church. Um, I'm glad you guys are here. Um, and if uh, you are a visitor, visitor-ish this morning, thank you for being here. Um, yeah, it's a big deal to come together, uh, to learn together and hopefully be encouraged. I think that uh, there's always the, um, the online option. Welcome, if you're online with us. I know my mom is always with us via, via internet. Good morning, mama. Um, and that's wonderful, but man, being together, is a big deal um, because much more happens than just uh, a transfer of information. Uh, the Bible calls it fellowship. When we, we gather together, experience God's presence together um, and not merely in some mystical, sort of ethereal way, but, but in the conversations, the interactions when when we receive communion together. And yes, even in this, um, when someone like me, a pastor, begins to preach the word of God, as we say, the Spirit of God, the Holy Spirit, is present in our gathering. And that's what we're doing here. So thanks for being a part of it. it, is my point. John chapter 11. This, um, this is the end of I would, what I would consider to be the first half of John, or the first major movement within the gospel according to John. After today, we're, we're shifting gears radically. Um, all the teachings, the miracles, the plotting, to murder Jesus, there's, there's been this sort of escalation, this build up, and now finally, um, we're told explicitly that from this point on, they, they were all decided, we need to murder this man. We need, to, we need to figure out a way to arrest him and see that he's executed. And after today, um, he's gonna make his way to the cross. Um, and we're gonna zoom in. Uh, We're gonna look at some very long sort of conversations, not long boring, but very like, detailed, long detailed conversations that Jesus has with his disciples on the eve of his crucifixion, otherwise known as the upper room discourse, takes up a massive chunk of the book. Then of course, the arrest, the betrayal, arrest, crucifixion, and resurrection, Jesus himself, um, is all what we'll be looking at after today. But this marks the end of a major section within John. So that's significant. That, that provides some context. Um, more immediately, uh, the context wise, Lazarus was just raised from the dead. Um, so that's just happened here last week, or if you want to just back up and read the beginning portion of John chapter 11. A man named Lazarus, who had two sisters, Mary and Martha, this man died. And Jesus raised him from the dead. Um, And we're told that after that happened, quite a few people finally decided, we believe. I'm still not sure the believers knew exactly what they believed, um, except that there was something different, special, radically special about this rabbi named Jesus, the things that he was doing? I mean, who raises a man from the dead? Who, who opens the eyes of a man who was born blind? I mean, who does these things? This is more than just a teacher. Something exceptional about this man named Jesus. And so they're beginning to believe. I mean, who wouldn't believe when you witness a dead man coming back to life, although ironically, we're told that actually um, some believed, and for others, they're like, that's it, final straw, this guy's got to die. What he's doing is disrupting everything about what we have going on here. It kind of says something about, like, uh, I don't know, the, the condition of the human soul. Sometimes I think that we'd like to think that and just give me like the empirical evidence. Give me proof. And then, and then maybe I'll believe. I don't, I don't know that we really work that way. I'm no psychologist. Um, I'm a human. So I have my own, my own experience. Um, logic's good. Rational argumentation, super helpful. But when it comes right down to it, there's more going on when it comes to believing in Jesus than just being presented with the quote-unquote evidence. There's a, a truly a heart um, issue at stake. And so that's kind of what we're seeing here. Um, verse 47, let's, let's just jump into this. Or verse, uh, yeah, 47, what are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. So those who didn't believe or chose not to believe or simply didn't want to believe or weren't yet convinced that jesus was something special i mean perhaps they believe that he actually did raise this man from the dead but they weren't still convinced that he was the one like the great deliverer, the the quote-unquote messiah the christ who was to come and like restore the kingdom as it once was the kingdom of israel the kingdom of god heaven on earth and they're like i don't know he's he 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 kind of seemed like maybe he was the one, but he's not quite fitting into our categories. In fact, he goes on like this. Pretty soon, everyone's going to begin to follow this man. And our little little plot, our space, our temple, I think that's what they're actually referring to. The the second temple that Herod had re-erected for the Jewish people, that, that was their... That was their space, and of course their nation itself. They, they were hanging on by a thread because the Roman Empire was beginning to uh, um, take over. Well, they had already taken over. But they were existing sort of in um, some sort of a, an agreement with the Roman Empire, and they, uh, they didn't like what Jesus was, um, was doing. You know what these are? These are the plans uh, for this building. Quite a story um, behind these. I won't get into it because I don't want to trigger my trauma. Um, But when we bought the building just over two years ago, uh, we thought, man, we we should renovate the place. It felt like God had entrusted something really special to us. Okay, we didn't build the building. It was here long before us. Um, the, the group of Germans who had all immigrated over from Russia who had actually built this building, they, they started it and, and were a part of a legacy. Um, we've got a couple of pictures in the stairwell over there. I wish, we, I wish we had more, but for sure, I think the guy who's like obviously German hanging on one wall, I think that's like the founding pastor. At least that's, that's the version I subscribe to. And then, no, that guy. And then the, the black man who, that, that looks like a bit more like up to date, that's Pastor Ray, uh, Roy Clay, who lives in the house just next door. You've never met Pastor Roy. He's a cool guy, um, but he was the pastor of this church for about 25, almost 30 years. And we bought the building. He retired, um, and we we sort of took the baton, as it were. But we bought the building. We thought, look, we got to renovate the place. So I was told there's a there's like a proper way to do this, um, and so we got an architect and we did plans. And there was electric and uh, yeah, all the ADA stuff, and the et cetera, et cetera, and like quite an ordeal. And then once he drew up the plans, essentially we built walls downstairs. That's, that's what it comes down to. And we had to submit these plans to the city permit office. Multnomah County had to put their stamp on it. Has anyone ever tried to do this before? I don't recommend it. <laughs> it's, it's a nightmare. It's like going into, like descending into the bowels of hell to, like, get Satan's stamp. No, I'm sorry. That's not. That's <laughs> sorry. It's not that bad. But we had plans. Okay, so this is obviously some sort of illustration, right? Um, we all have, like, plans when it comes to the stuff that we're getting up to with our lives, right? And uh, forgive me for the, the cheesy pastor anecdote, okay? But the plans that we have, I think we can grow rather attached to, even if it is just a few walls in the basement. We can put a lot of effort into like creating this sort of plan or, or vision for what we want our life to look like and how it's all supposed to play out. And, and then maybe at some point along the way, you begin to think about, well, I don't know, God, heaven, hell, purpose, and like spiritual things. And perhaps at some point you begin to think to yourself, well, it would be awesome if I could get God to sign off on my plans. Because if I understand it correctly, it, it's his job to like bless and heal and restore and like help and, and you know, like do the God things. Particularly when I'm sort of at the end of myself. And so we can get this idea in our minds that um, God's, role is to put his stamp on our plans. And in this portion of John chapter 11, I think that's kind of what's happening with these people. They've got this idea, they've got plans, they've got a vision for what the, um, the kingdoms meant to look like their special place, their nation, their culture, their belief system, their identity. And they're expecting God to show up and put a stamp on their plans. Only when it doesn't seem to be working out like that, they decide to kill him instead. Now, if that's not just a metaphor for life. I don't know what is. Why do we do that? What is that? How does God view our plans? I can tell you how a county views these plans. But I won't, because it's frustrating. They finally gave us their stamp. Um, in this, this case, I think we would do well to cut these people a little slack. Um, they were sincere people. We we keep sort of like running into the opponents of Jesus, the opponents of Jesus, those who who were like as the story progresses, they they're getting increasingly frustrated with this Jesus character. Um, they're watching him they're listening and they're looking for Messiah they're, they're told to expect some sort of deliverer from God who's to come and, and restore their kingdom their nation and, and, and lead them into freedom deliver them from bondage and so they're, they're, they're hoping they're waiting they're, they're looking out for someone who would do that and that's I think that's okay That's fine. I mean, who's not looking for for a bit bit more peace in life? A bit more freedom? A bit more security? And um, we begin to sort of like form these ideas about what it's meant to look like. How it's meant to feel. And we have certain expectations that I think we quite naturally sort of uh, project. Well, onto the people around us and... Of course, God. And then Jesus comes along and he begins to um, subvert our ideas about what like, the good life is supposed to feel like or look like or how my plans are meant to play out. Why does God do that? Um, as it turns out, Jesus' kingdom, if we can put it that way, like his plans, the life that he offers his people, and people like us, is way better than the plans that we tend to come up with. You know, there, sometimes I believe... We can, um, we can get an idea about what God is like and, and what his plans are meant to be for our lives based on uh, you know, experiences of religion. In Matthew chapter nine, um, I know it's Matthew chapter, yeah, I think it's Matthew chapter seven, I believe. Jesus is talking to a group of very religious people, uh, devout, upright, religious people, and they're saying, Jesus, when your kingdom comes, uh, will there be a place in it for us? And Jesus says, not everyone who calls me Lord is going to experience the, the life that I'm, I've come to put on offer. And then they retort. They say, but Jesus, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, do mighty works in your name? And he says, in that moment, I will look at those people I'd say I never knew you. I never knew you. And there's a whole, there's many, many layers to what's what's happening in that moment and what Jesus is saying to those particular people. But for sure, one of the layers is the fact that we can actually create expectations that somehow are connected to religious experiences we've had, usually growing up, and begin to think to ourselves that this is what it's meant to look like. This is how it's meant to, to, to feel or to, to sound and 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 maybe if I just do all the religious things, maybe if I just sort of get my morality sorted out, maybe if I can just master the motions, then Jesus will finally sign off on my plans and bless me and help me and do the things that I expect him to do for me. And Jesus comes along and says, nope, I have something way, way better. And in fact, those experiences that I think that we all have in our own personal ways along the way, maybe growing up, that sort of experience of church you had once upon a time, it can actually sometimes serve to inoculate us when it comes to God's actual plans for our lives. Religion and I mean that in the pejorative sense, can actually serve as a type of spiritual inoculation. Meaning we can get it in our minds that, oh, I know what religion is all about. I I know this church thing. Been there, done that. If I... Do the right things, do them well enough, do them consistently enough, check off all the boxes, get my ish together, then God will surely put his stamp on my life. God will surely bless me. And Jesus comes along, he says, Let me see those plans. What do you got? What do you got there? Let's let's check it out. Oh, you got some walls. Okay. Oh, good. Oh, uh, look at that. Oh, you drew the pews and everything. Okay. Some lights, some LEDs downstairs. Only two bathrooms. Hmm, that's going to be a problem. Hmm. Well, I could put my stamp on it. You know, we'll just. We'll make it work somehow. Or we could just completely rewrite the whole thing. How does God feel about our plans? Now, here's, here's what I'll... Let me, let me kind of qualify this a little bit before I make my next point. I don't think God hates our plans. I think in the same way we can become inoculated with just a little bit of religion little spiritual vax. We can swing the other way. And we can think that man, I tried the religion thing and I failed so bad that I I'm, I'm just going to hide my plans from God because he's going to he's going he thinks they're a joke. In fact, he's going to look at my little attempt, my little scribbled, my little sketched out, you know, plans that I call life, and he's probably just going to like sort of wince in disgust your plans are lame only two bathrooms what are you pathetic and we can get this idea that God actually hates my plans he thinks my aspirations are a joke but that's not God either Jesus didn't reject these people who were plotting to kill him in fact if we read on, we'll find that those were the very people that Jesus went to die for. And as he was being executed on a Roman cross, he prayed for his executors that his father might forgive them. He doesn't wince at our plans or our lives in disgust. He just simply wants us to give our plans to him because his are way, way better. Way better. Like so much better that you could even, here's, here's one of the, the wonderful weird paradoxes of God's kingdom. God's plans are so better that if you were to actually compare them, yours are kind of rubbish. That's just the truth of the matter. I always, I always tease my wife, one of the kids bring home like a, an assignment that they obviously did a really, really good job at. And she's like, my love, look what, look what Isaac did. And I look at it, I'm like, I could have done better. <laughs> he's 12. <laughs> um, yeah, that's, that's the truth, I could have done better. Um, God, he doesn't hate our plans, and he's not impressed either. He just wants us to surrender because his plans are so, so much better. The temptation can be to hold on to our place in our nation. The temptation can be to cling to that, that life or those plans or that identity that we've constructed. Determined to just, just get God to stamp it. That's all I want. It doesn't have to be the best life. It doesn't have to be the abundant life. I just want you to stamp my plans for my life. We'll barter with God. Like, I'll be good. I'll give. I'll serve. I'll stop cussing so much. I'll do the things. I'll try. If you just put your stamp on my plans. But his plans are so, so much better. In fact, they are so much better that um, when we finally begin to, to experience or come to terms with like the, uh, the extreme betterness of God's plans than ours, you can quite naturally begin to feel like, I don't know if I'm qualified for that life. Which brings us to verse 49. You know nothing at all nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. And he did not say this on his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied, the Holy Spirit spoke through him that Jesus would die for the nation, not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. That's that's us, we're included the children of God scattered abroad. One man who would die for the world. Jesus is the one who dies for us. Those two words, for us. Those are significant words. Um, Have you ever been at an event or a party or maybe a wedding where you have this, um, like all of a sudden you realize that you are so underdressed for the occasion? I realize this is organ, so this may not really translate you're like, I, I, I rock jeans at weddings, I don't care what anyone else is wearing, which is one of the things I love about Oregon. But I went to a wedding one time, this was a couple of years ago, the fanciest wedding, the fanciest event I've ever been to, and I was officiating the wedding. I don't actually get invited to weddings, like ever, unless I'm officiating. I don't know what to make of that. Um, and so I'm officiating this wedding, and it was fancy. I only have one suit. And I felt I was okay, but I I I felt very insecure. I felt so insecure, so nervous that I actually pronounced the groom's name wrong twice. It was it was so I was like I still feel anxious when I think about it. Two times I said his name wrong. At least it was his name and not, not the, anyways. Um, but it was really fancy. Everyone was like in tuxes and I was in my little, my little suit trying to keep it together. Jesus uh, tells a parable in Matthew 22. The parable of the wedding feast. It's, uh, it's the story about a rich man, a king, who's throwing a big feast a big wedding banquet and he invites all these people and uh they all have excuses for not being able to be there and so then the king says well all right then go out and and just invite anyone you can get to come does it doesn't matter Go to, go to the highways, go to the byways, go, go to the, the underpass, go to the tent city like anyone. Send the invite out. Invite anyone and everyone to come. And so they all show up. All of the rabble, the, those who don't belong, they show up. And of course, it's a picture of the kingdom. that The kind of kingdom that Jesus, his plans, his vision for what he wants to do for our lives and his kingdom coming to earth, it's, it's meant to be like a family for those who don't have family. A place for the lonely. A place to belong for those who don't belong. Jesus calls the dead and the dying, not the healthy and the well-to-do. Not those who have it all together, but those who are like broke, confused, lost, and forgotten. And he says, come one, come all. And, and those of you who feel very, very least, I want you to sit up front with the wedding party. You know, that that table they put in front of everyone. Um, And then there's a twist. This is Matthew 22. At the very end of the parable, Jesus uh, says that the king notices one person there who's not wearing wedding attire. And he says, hey, friend, who let you in? And he says, because he didn't have like the right attire on he told the uh the 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 servants bind the man and cast him out into the outer darkness and there there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth you're like my gosh what a terrible ending to like a really cool story i i thought i thought it was a party for the rabble i thought it was for for those who don't belong and but there was this one guy who apparently didn't have a nice enough suit, he gets kicked out. What Jesus is saying is that there's something about his party, his kingdom, his plans for our life, such that as we begin to like get into the party, we be automatically become very, very aware that I do not belong here. I don't have a nice enough suit, I, don't, I had to borrow my tie, I bring nothing to the banquet. Like I really feel overwhelmed with this sense of like, I am not good enough to be at this party. I don't belong here. And that's right. That's right. You can't afford the cover fee. You don't have what it takes to get in. And so Jesus dies for us. He substitutes his attire for our rags. He covers us. He pays the price. He redeems us. He dies for us so that we can come in. So not only are his plans better, but they're so, so, so much better that as we get closer to them, we are overwhelmed with our sense of, I don't know if I have a nice enough suit for this party. Jesus takes his off. He gives it to us. He covers us. He gives his life for us. Oh, these are different kinds of plans. Different kinds of Plans. Jesus has invited us into the kingdom we never asked for and paid the price we could never afford. It it sets us on this journey. Let's say say we respond to uh, to the invitation or the great challenge of Jesus, however you want to think about it. Jesus comes along or, or maybe even just now, let's 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 make it let's put it in plain terms. So here I am preaching. I'm trying to communicate something that I think is, is so beautifully sort of like laid out in this story and 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 connected to our life here and 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 so and so I'm now I'm gonna tell you like why don't you surrender your life to Jesus? Whatever plans you've got, you've been just trying to get Jesus to stamp so that he'll bless you or help you, whatever whatever you're trying to get from God, whatever you're trying to barter for, what if instead you just surrender and say, okay, I I give up. Like, the plans were okay, I was pretty attached, I worked really hard, but if yours are so much better, I surrender. I surrender. And you begin this journey. I mean, God only knows what it's going to look like. You're, you're told that it's good, like really good, better than anything that you could ever dream up for yourself. You start moving along, trying to figure, what, is, what does it even mean? What do I do? Like what sin do I need to let go of and, and what great promises am I, am I meant to hold on to and you're trying to figure it out and of course you've got relationships around you and you're learning how to read your Bible and you're praying and you're doing all these things and, and along the way you begin to... To, to realize, like, man, this is this is an extraordinary gift i 've been given. And there will be a temptation, of course, when it gets hard, and you 're like, man i 'm kind of starting to rethink this whole thing. I, I feel like the longer I follow Jesus, the more he 's trying to like somehow uh, it 's like he 's want wanting me to go to the cross. To like lose my life and begin to like learn the way of sacrificial love uh, i don't i don 't know if I like those plans, and so'll we'll, we 'll go back we 'll find the old plans be like i 'm just sorry these, these actually weren 't that bad i don 't I don't like dying to myself i don 't like learning how to how to practice the way of sacrificial love, and so we have to continually sort of Give our plans to Jesus. Like, I surrender again and again and again. Every day, in fact. That's, that's the idea that every day we say, Lord Jesus, my life is no longer my own. The life I now live, I live by faith in the Son of God, the one who gave his life for me. And I began to realize, like, well, this is a gift. I've been invited to the party that I could never ever afford to get into in my wildest dreams. Not enough cash on planet Earth to cover that cover fee. And I'm in, oh my gosh, look at me. I've got the the best robe in the house. I'm sitting at the place of honor with Jesus. You know what that does in like real life terms? It begins to that life, those plans begins to manifest in radical humility. I've been given a gift. Oh, it it um it obliviates entitlement. It completely subverts boasting. This idea, and I'm probably the only one that's ever, ever thought this, but this idea that I'm like better than y'all, I'm not you guys, like those people. Doesn't work. Humility begins to become an actual thing in my life. Um generosity When you've been given so so much even though you deserve so so little it does something to like our attitude towards the stuff that we have in this life all of a sudden as I look around it's like everything's a gift everything is a gift And he didn't owe me anything, but he gave me everything. How can I hold on to any of it? How can I think of clinging, hoarding, mongering? This is a journey of radical generosity where it's my joy to share this life with others. It's a journey of gratitude. If you want to experience a life marked by gratitude, follow Jesus, follow Jesus. He calls us to the kingdom we never asked for, and he pays the price that we could never, ever afford. Follow that king, experience that life, begin to live a life of deep, deep gratitude, which by the way, is a really great way to live. It's the better plan for our lives. So there you go. Or you could decide to plot his murder.
0: Mm-hmm. It's
1: like a real choice there. Pretty extreme. I know you're like kind of like awkwardly giggling. I'm being serious. But there, at some point, there comes like a real choice. Will we surrender? and allow Jesus to substitute himself for us, or will we say, no, thank you. I'm, I'm going to keep my plans. At some point, you're going to see a collision of kingdoms, and you're going to have to decide whose kingdom are you in, or to whom do you belong. You might have to get over the, um, the, uh, the religious vax that you... Un- that you did not sign up for when you were a kid, and you grow up in church, I was telling someone this morning, you know the thing I loved about church more than anything else? I'm gonna end with this powerful anecdote. You know what I loved about church growing up more than anything else? The donuts. (laughs) Because in between Sunday school and grown up church, you got the donuts. Did anyone get the donuts growing up? Okay. It's the best. And then at some point, I think I got in my mind, that like, oh yeah, church is about the donuts. You gotta show up, the, the second half is super boring, but it's worth it because of the donuts. And of course, you gotta throw a quarter in as well. It's, it's, it's not mandatory, but you gotta throw a quarter in. And I would say some of you, you're gonna have to actually get over that, that hurdle that is religious inoculation and realize like you had an experience of God growing up and you perhaps, and I don't know your heart, I don't know your story, but you perhaps had an experience of religion that was just enough of the truth to put you off. And now Jesus is coming to you again saying, I've got better plans well, my plans are way better than donuts. Or that really, really awful abuse you experienced growing up in the name of Christendom. My plans are better, and I've paid the price.